In February 2006, the police came and uh, raided our house at the request of the US. And that was very much a life-changing day and moment for me and changed the way I view everything from politics to how I'm viewed as a subject to, to my desire to act and be like a catalyst for a better world. This podcast touches on mental health issues, including depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder and mania. It also looks at issues around suicide, incarceration and bullying. Every time someone breaks my heart or leaves me, I'm back to being like an unwanted nerd in the playground who no one would play football with. Right. And like... It just doesn't leave you, even in my mid-30s angst. To me, the entire hollow nature of Western capitalist democracy is because of extrovert supremacy. Politicians are like car salesmen, and like an election and a parliament can only represent people of a certain type. Our type of people, if you identify the way, can't be represented, can't debate in parliament. They have to be represented by an extrovert. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better Please make me better I want to get better 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 acquainted with you Today we're getting better acquainted with Hamza. Uh, hello, Hamza. How are you? I'm all right. <laughs> Uh, and we're recording in the Royal Festival Hall, so we're sort of using as, as quiet voices as we can because I think both of us are people who feel kind of uncomfortable interrupting other people's lives, right? And yeah. there's a few other people's lives around us. Yeah. Although there are also people at the other end of the room having a, a meeting, so people may hear that, that the noise yeah. of them in the yeah. background. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you through my friend George, who's an old school friend, um, right. but apparently you know me, so yeah. I, I have a strange, because I have a semi-probic, I'm not a celebrity as such, but I have been on every single media channel, partly because of uh, my brother was quite a high-profile prisoner, and I used to run his campaign, now he's free, for a number of years, uh, whilst he was detained without trial and extradited, and uh, it got quite a bit of establishment recognition as well so I got shortlisted for a Liberty Award and it changed the course of my life for a couple of years so having the camera shoved in my face um, it was quite odd because prior to that I was quite a shy person not that I'm not shy you know I'm still loyal to my um, oppressed people right but um yeah, my brother was one of these. He was, he's detained without trial and charged for six and a half years on an extradition request from the US under um, accusation related to terrorism in July 2006. Um, in February 2006, the police came and uh, raided our house at the request of the US. And that was very much a life-changing day and moment for me and changed the way I view everything from politics to how I'm viewed as a subject to, to my desire to act, be like a catalyst for a better world. Right. I mean, so that, he was detained in Guantanamo Bay, right? No, or, sorry, no, he wasn't. Detained. He was detained in... Um, it's, in some ways, it's the same generation in terms of the same concerns, like Bosnia and Chechnya and Afghanistan, like the same, the same sphere of conflict and, and the same generation and about the same age. Uh, the, the Britain has its own Guantanamos in places like Belmarsh uh, and Long Latin, where right. you have regimes of detention without trial. I mean, they're not things... things people think such things... You know, they might have the recent reference of internment under Northern Ireland, people detained without trial, um, and then going further back, the Japanese-Americans. So what happens in Guantanamo, it sort of grows out of something which is inherently there in the sort of domestic criminal system in, in the US, 
so it's much of the sort of abuses occur anyway in, in Supermax prisons and solitary right. confinement where my brother was eventually extradited to you know things like gassing cells out till people choke and um, prolonged solitary confinement and then it's sort of grown into the British system so we have things like secret trials and um, you know like many things which you see as staples such as I know, habeas corpus or uh, the presumption of innocence before proven guilty and so forth. Um, and Dala's case is nonsense anyway. It's like, I mean, talking a lot about my brother, yeah, but I might as well. So <laughs> there was some uh, sort of a website and a publishing house uh, primarily focused on the conflicts in Bosnia and Chechnya. And Dala had some marginal association with it, wouldn't even run it, wasn't even on the website. And for that, he was uh, detained without trial for longest periods in British history. It's funny to me to revisit these things. I mean, I still speak publicly about the issue because Theresa May was the one who, uh, as Home Secretary, uh, extradited him. But I think it's influenced my life in a huge way and altered it and altered me for the better and shaped me for the better. So the activist festival I do every year, DIY Cultures, which is occurring this year on the 14th of May uh, at Rich Mix, which we've been running for the last four years, it's very much shaped by the same networks of solidarity and people also affected by like state crimes. Um, right. So I work closely with groups like um, at Hillsborough Justice Campaign. One of my great heroes of all time is Sheila Coleman, um, who's one of the spokesmen for H- Hillsborough Justice Campaign. And she really understands things systematically. So right. the way the police work, the Crown Prosecution, Home Office work, it's sort of always within the same pattern. And um, Sheila Coleman, as many people in Liverpool are, she's an Irish Catholic, so she's very close friends with people like uh, Jerry Conlon, the Guildford Four, and um, Paddy Hill, the Birmingham Six. And as an Irish Catholic growing up in 70s Britain, you know, she has this sort of consciousness. I think 75% of Liverpool are actually from Ireland anyway. Um, yeah. I've been spending um, some time as part of DIY Culture's research, spending a lot of time in Liverpool. Um, so I mentioned the Hillsborough uh, justice uh, thing. So much of the truth of Hillsborough was recognised uh, in the zines and fanzines, football fanzines, decades, decades before the mainstream caught on to it and decades before um, it became the reference point for injustice in Britain. And I've been going and meeting all the fanzine editors from like the 80s and 90s and looked at ways in which... Because there were these wilderness years where the Hillsborough families, they lived without, like, hope and a lot of trauma and uh, how zines helped them cope with it. Um, and it, it, I just discovered a whole new world. Firstly, living in quite a London-centric bubble and, and reassessing the way I look at things like uh, masculinity. Uh, I, I don't know, I think, I, I think I've developed a certain contempt for... Um, I don't know, like, this very self-hating, I would say, white leftist man... And I feel like, I don't know, we're going to these football fanzines and, and my relationship to football, which is very on and off, it's about my relationship to my own masculinity. The, I don't know, the, the, firstly, the, the, the clever levels of class critique in the zines and the way they viewed zines as very strongly a working-class identity, um, which is odd because you think of zines these days as such a sort of middle-class hipster right. thing. And then how they use humour to like um, cope with trauma and how they just played a part in solidarity, like when they wanted to boycott Sheffield Wednesday and stuff, it was through these early zines, like Through the Wind and the Rain and Red Over the Land. And, um, yeah, it was, it, and just, I, I'm just something is new to me, because m- my entry point into zines, which I've been making since I was 13 years old, has often been through, like, 1990s riot growl, um, Manic Street Preachers subculture around zines. Right. Um, 
at DIY Cults, we will have some sort of exhibit. Um, I'm making a short film about how zines helped the Hillsborough campaign through the, right. wil- the wilderness years, where there weren't really anyone interested in people repeating the same lies and the new Labour government had betrayed them, and how zines helped them survive and how zines created this uh, community of solidarity, not just about people in Liverpool, but just, I guess, the working class under Thatcher. Um, and how football supporters were seen as part of the enemy within. And just like from now, British Muslims being seen as that enemy within and then looking at languages used against uh, the miners or football supporters in the 80s or these other um, parallels and... um, it's often the same people, like the Sun, and right. like yes, and is. like the same Home Secretaries, and it's just funny how I mean it takes 27 years for the Hillsborough people to, to get some form of accountability, and still, uh, you know, Kelvin McKenzie's now abusing Muslims. Uh, you know, he's just sort of what, yeah, I don't know. It's been really interesting to me to watch through this filter of, of Facebook, whatever that is, like you making these connections between, you know, like you say, like the way that Muslims are treated by the state, both in the UK and, and in America, and with the way that uh, Hillsborough happened and with the way that kind of the troubles happened and all, all, all these things have been really interesting to see. I, mean, I guess I've always seen those connections a little bit, but you've been really bringing them out in ways that, yeah. that I'm not used to people talking about, and I'm yeah. really glad that you're doing yeah. that. I mean, it's interesting, like you say, we 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 vaguely know like we've got a mutual friend George who I was in a band with yeah. and you went to school with yeah. um, and I think you know I loved I love George uh, but he can also be uh, a frustrating uh, presence at least on Facebook yeah, not, yeah. not in your I, everyday I totally life. understand what you mean so, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. to and me I, those, those secondary school years are the worst <clears throat> years of my life um, right um, me too I I feel that way about and it's, it's sad like the sort of the sort of sense of defeat and humiliation you experience in secondary school often stays with you for the rest of your life. I mean, there's many studies about how, like, prison regimes may contribute to suicide. I mean, I always think, like, there's a link between secondary school and, like, adult depression and dissatisfaction. Yeah, me too. Um, and it, it's, it's just sad. I mean, my book I'm writing, uh, that I finished, actually, uh, Shy Radicals, is re-envisioning how we can think of it politically... So Shy Radicals, it's, it's about a militant, anti-imperialist, separatist, identitarian political party like the Black Panthers, but for shy people. Right. We're struggling for a homeland called Aspergistan, run under Sharia law, and the whole book's modelled on those type of Black Panther anthologies. But I, I actually take it... I mean, it's, it's, it's a form of speculative satirical fiction, but I feel there's something like... You know, in all this discourse about privilege and intersectionality, really, like, the people I relate to are, like, quiet people who like libraries and, like, people who get... And it's just, like, thinking of secondary school, like, I was often bullied for the mere fact, the mere fact that I was quiet, like, that was seen as threatening enough and a reason to, like, hit me or, or, or treat me with disdain. And, like, if it was any other demographic category, like, if I'm, if, if I'm a woman, right, I have a lineage of, like, the suffragettes or the women's movement or whatever, and then work, if it was a base for class, I have the trade union movement and the toll puddle martyrs and whatnot. If I, if it was based on race, I have the US civil rights movement, the ANC, Malcolm X. Now, as a shy, quiet person, I don't have like a liberation movement or a uh, lineage of history that I can relate to. 
so therefore I made one up, which right. is essentially what my book's about. It's published by um, Bookworks. It should be out in... We're aiming for it to get out by May in time for DIY Cultures. It might be out by the time you're listening to this. Um, published, um, and the full title is called Shy Radicals, The Anti-Systemic Politics of the Militant Introvert. So we know each other through George, and then the reason I felt confident enough to reach out to you eventually is because after a while it wasn't just through George, because I remember like back in the day when, when your brother was kind of... When you were actually campaigning yeah. for, yeah. for your brother, uh, George was always like, she get my mate on the show, and I felt like that's a weird thing for me to do, just like yeah. reach out to someone who doesn't really know me, because yeah. uh, this show is about kind of connections between me and other people. Yeah. Now there's a lot more mutual friends that yeah. we have on Facebook. Yeah. There's a lot of other people that I know uh, through the arts, through activism, through various different uh, routes, who all know you, yeah. um, which is an interesting place to be as someone yeah. who self-describes yourself as shy and quiet. Yeah, but so, yeah some people cynically say... Um, you're not shy, which uh, really hurts me. Like to me, a shy person is someone who's suffered as a shy person. And um, don't know. Yeah, I do speak on stage and on TV, uh, but <laughs> I guess it's like you spend a lot of time in a cave, and then whatever I say is like from that cave. Right. I have huge issues with intersectionality and no social privilege, which is why I write the introvert thing. Into to me, a lot of like intersectionality is like extrovert supremacist and like. You know, even mm, phrases people use, like um, man explaining and white explaining, like, like sorry, quiet introvert people do feel, feel no need to speak over you. To me, that's a problem of extrovert supremacy. That's a really interesting point. I, 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 kind, of, I kind of can see where you're coming from. I, I guess I'm not... People think I'm not shy. I, I feel like I am shy. Yeah. I don't necessarily think I'm an introvert because yeah. I'm, I think I'm an ambivert, whatever that yeah. means. So I, I guess you know, that makes me kind of uh, middle class or something, like yeah. in terms of the, like, I'm, I've got a proximity to extroverts, yeah. which means that I benefit from being an ex, from being seen as an extrovert. Yeah. So I, I guess I, I, I am part I, of I, your I problem. I actually sum up the whole thing in two questions, which is I go up to someone and I ask them two simple questions, which is, do you like parties? No. And do you like clubbing? No. And there you go. Then That's all I need. I'm, yeah. in, I'm in the club. <laughs> I, I don't know, though, if it's as simple as that. Like, I do like some parties. I do like some clubbing. Oh, I have a collaborator. That's what I mean. Like, I'm, I'm an social, social democrat of... Well, um, I, of, I, yeah, like, I, of, uh, this may be the only time I kind of... Be, you're the Nick Clegg of... Uh, right, this... Tony Blair of... This is pleasant. <laughs> this is like, the only time Chinese. I'll be seen as middle, middle within my politics by, by yeah. anyone, which is nice. Uh, it's nice to have to, to sort of see what it's like to uh, to be seen as a collaborator and I guess I am I mean I'm, I'm a collaborator in loads of ways right I'm, mm. I'm, I mean people I, say that about me too like certain music I liked in the 1990s I, I really liked Orbital and I saw loads of Orbital gigs and they, they, and someone told me about Orbital gigs like a rave and it didn't really click with me like I just thought it was like I thought of that type of electronic music as semi-autistic right like, so you were of, in your own mind yeah. when you're listening to and it and I like listening to it like but it was like it was like the, the the landscape in your head. It wasn't like I don't know. I, I I guess I like to overturn everything on its head. And to me, like a quiet uh, middle class person who likes antiquarian books is an oppressed person. But and isn't... I view it as like the whole uh, discourse of like the sensitive white man is like to me part of the axis of resistance. Right. So what do you want to? I was going to ask you a different question, but I'm interested in like what's your definition of the sensitive white man and what what, what do you mean Cobain. by that? Right, um, and is he Elliot Smith? You listen to Elliot Smith's song; it's so fragile, and the fact he kills himself. It's just so, like, are they, they are they part of the problem or part of the solution? I just have a huge thing about male suicide, and um, right. I, I'm very upset how something which is the biggest killer of young men 
just men under the age of 50 and I, I mean someone I knew uh, Mark Fisher who was quite a prominent writer uh, committed suicide just a few weeks yeah, ago and like who I knew and just the way it's not it kills more people than heart disease AIDS terrorism and the fact it's not treated in any form of like public epidemic and I don't even view when I see like a feminist like with a mug saying I bath in male tears and I know um, white middle class male who committed suicide I, I, I just find something disdainful in that right. and um I'm I'm someone who's always struggled with that um, myself. Me too. Like, and I, I I just think the the the, the and I, I don't like leftism. I mean, I consider myself part of the British left, but uh, there's a sort of goldsmith's wankery, London, cafe Otto, which is London. And when you go to places like Liverpool, it just simply doesn't exist. It just exists in this toxic bubble on like Tumblr and Twitter or whatever. Just saying, male suicide is simply about. These sort of stopped, I know, like the patriarchy or neoliberalism as these sort of all enveloping causes is to me inadequate. I think there's so much underneath, like, the issue of why people feel suicidal. Right. But I mean, in intersectionality, though, as a kind of way of thinking of things, wouldn't necessarily find the diagnosis of, of, of suicide in, in men as being purely one thing or another. Like, it mm. would be the intersection of various different things. I mean, mm. I, I care about suicide in men. I, I, yeah. I you know, make show. I've got a show about masculinity. I, I do a lot yeah. of work in ma- masculinity, and that's one of the things I say in my show. I don't use the male tears example. I sort of use the kill all men hashtag as an example. Mm. <clears throat> but both, I think, are very, very relevant. There are men who are killed, and there are men who commit suicide, and yeah. th- these things are not things to laugh about, even if the people you're laughing at you think... Uh, you know, aren't the people who experience these things? I just want the people are collateral damage for that. Right? Compassionate ways, yeah. complementary ways that we can relate to each other. I totally, totally with that. That's to me the yeah. end point. There's just, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I'm in various zero hours crappy jobs in galleries, and um, I work for one gallery called Rivington Place, um, which is supposed to be. It's, it's, you know, it takes its cue from like Stuart Hall and like, you know, black sociology and black leftism and. The person I struck the closest friendship in that venue was the the librarian. who was a guy called Nick who's just left, and he was just this quiet, middle-class guy. But I had this rapport with him that I had with no-one else, and I felt like we were of the same ethnicity, almost. Right. And um, we'd be suffered and bullied for the same way. Right. I don't know if I'm going off the topic, but um, I I also, uh, just commenting on what you said earlier, an intersection, I I just... I guess, like, because I'm a... I'm of Muslim background in in the left. Like, I just view the inadequacy of materialism as like, to me, like it's a spirit. A lot of suicides about meaning. Like, a lot the one that like um, at the time of like wedding anniversaries and there's suicide increases exponentially. Yeah. That's because to me, suicide's about meaning making and when meanings become meaningless. And there's a spiritual dimension to understanding um, suicide. Um, which I don't feel... I mean, I draw a lot from um, Radical Left too, and uh, so the way I reauthor my own depressive feelings is I think of it as... Um, to me, depression is a body's natural capacity to go on strike. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a, one way, a very valid way of looking at a lot of people's experience of depression. I also feel uh, very frustrated with the way that uh, the 
place that depression and other mental health issues is always located in in the way that people think about it is in, sure. within yourself right yeah. you have to solve something inside yourself yeah. and i think there is a bit of that but i also think there's the outside that people yeah. ignore yeah. like i'm not depressed just because i've got issues you know in myself i'm also depressed because the world itself is depressing around me mm. there's there's, there's it's, you know, it's also quite empirical like and scientific if, right. if you want to use those terms yeah, so yeah, yeah. you can easily draw a line between um austerity and suicide and like unemployment and suicide and the the bio biomedical model is just inadequate it's just but i don't to me it's not just biosocial um it's this as i don't know, spiritual dimension right. of like why some people want self-annihilation and and you can't really explain it just in terms of like you know like at some level people who have good public services or i don't like the sort of you know like the, the certain asian mother type of uh, attitudes, you know, like, well, you know, look at poor people in Bangladesh type of thing. They don't want to commit suicide. Why would someone like Princess Diana want to commit suicide? It's just like, it's I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's compli- It's super complicated. As as someone who, if you like, ticks all of the kind of boxes generally in terms yeah. of intersectional thinking of like, oh, he'll be all right in the world. I I, like, I, have I some, didn't I have, experience I have, that at school. Like I, I was sure. definitely othered at school. If yeah, you like. I have total contempt for that type of intersectionality because I think it's like life isn't as bureaucratic as that. As in, they're demographic categories drawn from like admin, basically. Like as if you can, there's a whole dimension you cannot assess. Like a school. I'm touching this in Shy Radicals in that there's Shy Radicals student movement and you might have a school inspection like Gravely, the school I went to with our mutual friend George it always did really well in terms of how many A to C GCSE grades it got the fact it had really nice labs the fact it had nice PE lessons but there's a culture of humiliation and like uh, oppression like, within that system which cannot be pinned cannot be assessed cannot be assessed in a school report uh, say my primary school got good Ofsted there's another culture of like bullying and um, I feel like bureaucratic countries can't really there's a particular way me and George even related to each other like as like I, I can't it's sort of like I don't I feel like the teen movie like actually like is how a lot of the politics in Shy Radicals is based on the like tropes in the teen movie right. so you have like the popular girl and stuff like right, that right. so I didn't actually watch films like Mean Girls till my like late 30s or my 30s because um, I just found it too traumatic to watch as a teenager right. um, but it's just funny like at the highest levels of power so people say the reason Ed Miliband lost the general election was because he was a nerd and you just think like god at that level of like echelons of power people, and Donald Trump won because he was a jock and it's like you just think at that highest level of power, even you can have CIA reports. There's a guy called Mark Sagerman who was one of my um, brother's defence witnesses who's like an ex-CIA, writes from really insightful works on terrorism and why people become commit acts of terrorism. And he, he like refers to things as groups of nerds and stuff like that. And it's just like, wow, just at like the highest levels of power, we're still using that language. I just find it... Um, and just this idea it never leaves like every time someone breaks my heart or leaves me I'm back to being like an unwanted nerd in the playground who no one would play football with right. and like it just doesn't leave you even in my mid-thirties angst um, yeah. I, I, I imagine like even when you go to heaven or hell like God would be like oh you're like you're like a popular girl or the nerd and, it's, and it's, it's like I feel this resentment in life I've never got a decent income or like crossed the line into you know really average paying adult right. job or a graduate job and I felt like people who achieved less than me at school but had this sort of party girl personality 
got to the highest levels of like earnings. Right, because um, you're rewarded for social capital as well as educational. Well, I, I capital. just call it like a fake, like extra. Yeah, it's like it's not just about the like economy employment, but even if you look at like to me, the entire hollow nature of Western capitalist democracy is because of uh, extrovert supremacy. Right, like so, politicians are like car salesmen, and like an election and a parliament can only represent people of a certain type. Like our type of people, if you identify the way, can't be represented, can't debate in Parliament. They have to be represented by an uh, extrovert. There, there's a, there, there is a parallel. I, recently, actually, I also work at the National Portrait Gallery in Visitor Services, but one of the best parts of the job is doing the gallery talks. I do a gallery talk on Clement Attlee. And actually, if you look at Clement Attlee, he's an example of a great introvert hero. Right, right. He's not just a hero because he introduced the NHS and the welfare state and in huge opposition to like Churchill and the Conservatives and he decolonised India basically transferred the British Empire to a Commonwealth he's also a hero because he, he was one of the great greatest introverted men who ever lived and he you know even up to the highest levels of power he had like he was painfully shy like but it was all part of his leadership and why he was such a great Prime Minister so he could sit in a room with the most fired up revolutionary trade unionists and like the most tub thumping he had people like Anur and Bevin Bevan right, in his, right, right. you know like he used to say things like Tories are lower than Vermin yeah. he could sit in the corner write a little poem or write a little doodle have them all calm down and like console them and, and then still introduce this radical red legislation democratically also I'd been shy and winning two general elections which are, to me is like heroic no, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting what you're saying as well. My, my partner's more introverted than I am. Yeah. Like, she's, like, a, a proper classical, like, introvert, whereas, I, like I say, I, I think I'm an ambivert because I don't like parties, but um, I also do, I do get some energy from, from being, I don't know, whatever, like, outgoing, all these things. Like, we were talking yesterday about the new, the new film, neither of us have seen it, Logan, right? A friend of mine said about that movie like it's all men there's only one woman character and she doesn't speak the whole way through yeah. right and I and I haven't seen the film but I was like hang on as far as I understand she's one of the two main leads yeah. and the fact that she doesn't speak is irrelevant film is a medium about vision to a certain extent if, if her face is on screen for a lot of the time it doesn't matter if she's saying anything we might still be relating to her this idea that to be an active character is to be a talker is to yeah. be someone who's loud and dominating the the, the, the conversation in certain ways seems yeah. to me a bit a massive yeah. double standard like being represented the, the Anthony Quinn in the film La Strada like the best bits of the film when he's just staring at the sea and he's just like but there's so much in that moment and there's no like there's not much dialogue um, right, but men get to be strong, silent types, whereas women don't even get to be that. If a woman's quiet, they're seen as uh, completely and utterly dominated. I, 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 I just don't accept the hierarchy like that. To me, like sometimes I'm quiet because I want to be, and because I'm listening. Right, and like in fact, I'm absorbing things better than like someone who has to speak incessantly. Yeah, and I don't. Yeah, to me, like I mean, that's where I'm an extrovert. I have to speak incessantly. That's yeah, where yeah. that's where I'm a collaborator. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it depends what context, I guess, but. Um, I know, I like to, I think Shy Radicals is also over trying to like overthrow the entire order in which we think of like privilege and stratification. But it's all rooted in the experience of being beaten up for being shy and quiet, yeah. which I'm sure George witnessed many times in secondary school. I don't know, there was this particular role like George's room had. Like he'd have all these records from the 70s and this sort of cult, it was like this cult cavern thing. And it, I just learned so much from like hanging out. And I used to feel very suicidal in secondary school. I only left secondary school because I attempted suicide at 17 uh, in sixth right. form. 
but I don't know, I, I, there was a particular culture when I used to hang around Georgia when we used to, I used to actually watch football and be into it and I, I got into, back into football when my life was like falling apart I, and then I went to university I lost interest in it I'm, and it's only in the last two weeks when I've been looking at the football fanzines and I'm hanging out at Anfield that I don't I feel like I got out of football because I had a certain con- snobbish contempt for like a particular type of match, which I saw as macho group, right? Think, but now I, I don't think I, I view it with a degree of like tenderness and like um, compassion, and I don't necessarily. There's a lot of like within the cliches around why men commit suicide. There's a lot of denigration of male friendships right. and the way they bond. And I don't have that denigration. I just think there's there's very wonderful aspects of male friendship and. Um, as if female friendship constitutes some superior form of like relating to one another or something. Um, but that I, bi- I think that binary way of thinking about both of these things are, is pretty toxic. Though. There's women who don't uh, socialise in the way that women are supposed to socialise. This whole empathetic, uh, sure. touchy feely thing isn't what all women do. And similarly, I think where where I was bullied at school and I was bullied at school not not necessarily physically but like I had I had I was the kid with the nickname that everyone in the school no matter what age shouted at in the corridor and spat yeah. at in the yeah. corridor and all that stuff so yeah. I'm sure that whilst we have different ex- histories they, there's a, there's probably a lot of crossover in our secondary school it yeah, sounds yeah. like but like I think I was bullied not for being quiet but for being emotional for her yeah. f- feeling for being yeah. o- for being overtly a feeling person for being yeah. vulnerable if you like yeah. and not being like like I talk all the time but I don't know how to speak in this codified way that people know that kind of gets them about I kind of just talk my feelings and that alienates a lot of people and I don't know what not to tell people because I just I just don't know that and I still don't know that even like now (laughs) but I don't think I should need to know that in some ways I think that this idea that everyone has to be one way and that my way is invalid somehow I'm not a man or I'm not uh, a strong person or whatever the the different ways that people think of that like I don't like that but but it, but I was bullied for being someone who was emotional, and you were bullied for be, being someone who was quiet. I mean, I would say that probably different as well. I mean, yeah. the interests I was just in, I was interested in a lot of things at an unusually early age. Right, different. So I was interested in art history, um, psychiatry, philosophy. Like right. at the age of thirteen, when other people were into like wrestling or like <laughs> right. football, so I just stuck as a bit of an odd, and I didn't really fit in with. The Muslims, like South Asian Muslims, they, firstly they look down on me. Uh, there's a sort of inter, like uh, you know, like within the, the phrase British Asians, there is hierarchy. So Punjabis, I see at the top, and many positions of power occupied by Punjabis. And if you switch on the channel British Asia TV, it will be Punjabi. It'll be about Bangra. It'll be about doll drums. It'll be and, and, and within British colonialism, that pattern occurred. So. The right. Punjabis were seen as the martial races. And there were Gujaratis who were like part of an entrepreneurial class in like usually in East Africa. Um, and then they used to refer to me as Banga, like which had a sexual connotation that because I'm a Bangladeshi and they saw Bangladesh as like some sort of um, just just a spit on me. Right. Uh, just so so anyway, but the point is I was much bullied by people the same skin colour as me, uh, right. people of the same religious background as me. They used to quite gang up at me. Um as much believed by like black people as white people, as much believed as women by men. Um, right. I don't know, <laughs> but I don't know. There's sort of multiple. I don't. I, I don't. The, the people like, and I still have this contempt. Like I have bitterness and contempt, and I have no like qualms about feeling bitterness and contempt. Like, right. like one of the people like who bullied me at school, uh, he went bald, and I got such delicious pleasure out of the fact that he lost all his hair. That like, I wouldn't get that if I wasn't 
properly but it just shapes you like you know I know like you know forms of I had severe social anxiety as to like I wouldn't be able to go into shops and stuff and I had like cognitive behavioural therapy for it, and it's strange because the way in which I stopped a lot of my social anxiety behaviour—I mean, even though I have it a little bit—was uh, actually my brother's campaign. Um, as I said, like my, my brother's headline news in 2012, and uh, the, the Home Office and the media were trying to demonise him, um, and I was there to provide the, the like compassionate defence. Um, and so I was forced in a position. Uh, so I, I always think some things are like there's a notion of uh, kada. It's, it's a term in Islam for like I don't know, God's destiny or whatever. But like it's in like bad things happen, but they actually reshape you and re, they break you and they remake you. Right. And like so now I, I'm invited to speak a lot in various forums from like the NUS to like um, like anti-war conferences to anti-racism conferences and speak on the stage a lot. But that was all through like my brother's campaign and stuff and it's weird and then like, I have no fear of public speaking in fact I quite enjoy it and I have no fear of like I, it's, I, I, I prefer actually like developing an argument through like a public speaking platform then the type of people I really have a lot of contempt for is the class of media commentators so you have this class of like usually Oxbridge PPE people who like write commentary and usually have opinions which aren't particularly well they're not particularly accurate well rehearsed they're quite a narrow spectrum of opinion and they have full-time jobs at writing opinions like um and i don't know i I don't view to me like the greatest people are people like who i mentioned sheila coleman of the hills for justice campaign uh they're like my role models mozambeg from cage who i think is amazing changed my life. Gareth Pierce, um, my, my brother's lawyer, who uh, she also represented the Guildford Four and the Hillsborough families, the minors. She's just such an incredible woman. So she's really shy. She's, she, she avoids the camera. She doesn't necessarily have any charisma. And it's in her shyness, the way she rephrases like a demonised terrorist suspect and says, oh, that person just wrote a poem. It's, it's something about her style of like, um, I even dedicated shy radicals to her as a bit of a joke and said she'd represent the shy radical political prisoners. Because um, she has this very muted. Uh, if you watch the film in the name of the father, where she's played by Emma Thompson, right. um, he she copies all her little mannerisms, which are quite sweet. But there's a power in her very understated manner of speaking. She's not like Michael Mansfield. She's not like this sort of extrovert, charismatic. But it's so powerful the way she's like you do like once you see Gareth speak, it really changes your life. Yeah, and so like I. I kind of really, I think I fully agree with the idea of kind of extrovert supremacy, I guess. Mm. Um, I guess it corresponds with, uh, have you, I mean, I'm sure you have, you'll be aware of Susan Cain's book Quiet, right? Yeah. yeah obviously, everyone will have yeah. been saying. Yeah. To me, that. Susan Cain is the Tony Blair of introverts. <laughs> I thought you might feel that. Um, I just, <laughs> she says things in her talk which are shocking. She says, I'm a believer of fake it until you make it. And she's married to an extrovert. Um, so she betrayed us like a horrible <laughs> extrovert like a corporate and she's a, she was a corporate lawyer no. um, so my f- place is saying well what does shyness I, firstly she comments a lot of shy books like Joe Moran's Shrinking Violets and stuff um, so shy radicals existed as like a political uh, platform on my Facebook since right. a few years before and it was when I was in South Korea actually and I felt really uh, lonely and, and certain aspect of hype capitalism in South Korea sort of gang- Gangnam style and K-pop and and just 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 disassociating from it and um, I was and I was also in this Q 
curator's course. That's why I was in South Korea with a bunch of goldsmiths wankers who used to just get drunk every day. And I just felt so out of place. And that's when I wanted to start to try radicals. And then I got a publishing deal with Bookworks. So Nina Power picked me for this series called Common Objectives. It's like political writing by artists. Um, and it's taken about three years. Um, and then Susan Cain's TED Talk sometime in between became really huge. Right. Um, but I, I still, like... To me, she doesn't ask, like, what's the relationship between, like, shyness and, like, whiteness? Like, what, where, what does shyness mean in relation to Black Lives Matter? So, in some ways, like, my shy radicals, which I describe as the Black Panthers of the introvert class, is drawing upon all these forms of militancy. I mean, I felt quite lonely when my brother was in prison. I used to campaign for him because I used to be out of sync with everyone. So I'd, I'd look up court rulings on solitary confinement right. and... Uh, the whole history of like, US political prisoners and I used to listen to things like Political Prisoner Radio on Black Talk Radio which is a podcast and Law and Disorder which was hosted by Michael Ratner the Centre of Constitutional Rights and so this is all radical la- lawyers movement and movements like uh, you know forgotten generations of political prisoners uh, such as Oscar Lopez Rivera who's just been released and I mean there are like uh, landmark cases and movement lawyers for reference to in Shy Radical's book and I also just found law really interesting, like, as an artist. Like, I don't know, yeah. I mean, what do you think, like, what, like where, what's your attitude to extroverts then? I mean, are you being ironic, like, when you, uh, like, like not part, not fully, like, ironic, but, like, like you know, when the rev- will, 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 will extroverts be up against the wall or will they be in- integrated into a, into a future that is kind of recontextualised around... Shyness. I mean, like, sometimes I, like, take on the persona of the characters in my book. Right. I confuse it with myself. <laughs> I don't actually know where the dividing line is. And sometimes right. I really mean it. And sometimes it's like... Because it's written in a way... It's written as if it is a political party. So we have the the first chapters of Constitution for the State. Um, we have, like, like public statements. We have, like, um, interviews with shy radical political prisoners. So I write it as if it was a real party, yeah. but it's not. Um, no, sure. That, like, some of it I just mean. Like, I mean, sometimes, like, on the weekend, I, I walk around, like, a city centre. I walk around my local area. I just want a quiet place to sit with, like, maybe a candle and chat face-to-face and a very soulful in-depth conversation with a friend and yeah. you go around Brixton or like um, Tootin where I'm from and there's like new bars everywhere's bustling and everyone's noisy and there's no way of like the state protecting your right to just have a quiet content place to have a nice chat I'd love it if we could introduce legislation where you could pick that there had to be some place reserved to me the last place which is reserved is like the public library, which is threatened by austerity, um, but it's just—it's not because public libraries are that useful. Because you can, most of us download books of on our Kindle. It's just the, that space where right. it's that type of silence is reserved, and where you're like uh, just a citizen and not a consumer. And also, I mean, I feel quite sad when I see cathedrals and churches go. Not because I have that much attachment to like institutional forms of Christianity or the Church of England just because they're, they're just one of the few places you can just sit. It's they're so lovely to like sit in a like, for all the problems the Catholic Church has done to sit in the like French Catholic Cathedral, uh, the little church in like Leicester Square and it's just this stillness, this is just beautiful it's just like, you know, I see it as numinal and like um, sacred and <coughs> everyone needs that Yeah, no, absolutely yeah. 
I mean, that's a that's a nice world. I mean, living in London makes that even harder to find. The the silence uh, is even harder to find in London, I think, than other places like you say. Like yeah. when you go to, uh, I, I'm not from London originally. I've lived all over the UK, and yeah. there's definitely a lot more silence to be found than you can find uh, in this in this city, in this yeah. noisy, busy city where everyone thinks that you know they have to be. 100 miles per hour and doing 100 things at the same time it's it's uh, intense mm. I guess like the, the second question I ask everyone which I, I'm asking quite late and I guess everyone will there'll already be people who have an idea of what your answer might be but it's always interesting to hear what people answer uh, is what do you do now what what, what do you ans- uh, say when somebody asks you that ridiculous question what do I do now as yeah. in what, like employment or what? what however you want to take it right a lot of the um, time people moment, think I'm making this short film about the Hillsborough scenes and planning DIY cultures right uh, basically that's taking over everything it just takes over my whole life it's like so that's DIY cultures that's like probably the UK's largest zine fair right uh, as we have about a hundred zine stores it's on like four different floors we basically take over the entire building and we have like commissions we have a big communal table which we commission we have short film commissions I, I do the talks program so I, I sort of develop the political identity of it to me like there's loads of like leftist book fairs but they're all quite stale it's usually like Owen Jones speaking again and like someone who has a book deal with Verso and they're there to promote their book so like I mean I do have some people you might regard as prominent like the Hillsborough campaign and that ties in with current affairs but like my favorite talk panel ever was the one called unemployment and creativity just mainly consisted of unemployed people who like had quite reflective things to say about the state of unemployment and like the leftist book fair as it stands now it has to have this sort of celebrity leftist literary class thing so it's a way of sort of shaking up ossified nature of like uh, leftist book fairs and activism do you see yourself as a curator well i study curator i say i'm a curator um i'm an artist uh, a writer and yeah, I don't know, but I've never had a proper curator's job, and, and it, that hurts me, and it makes me feel shit. Um, so I don't have... I'm not in the same pay band. Like, we're sitting in the Royal Festival Hall. I've, I've been rejected twice here. I've been rejected by the Hayward Gallery. I mean, I, I sort of resent it, because I, I, I've got... I'm qualified. I don't know. It's just, if you look at the employment profiles of, like, most museums and galleries, it tends to be white people. Um right mostly who go to Goldsmiths, Royal College of Art. And I was interviewed by two nice white women from Goldsmiths. You'd probably give the job to two other nice women, white women from Goldsmiths. And just this sense of humiliation and failure and just... just, just I've never... Um, I've just always been on a low income. I, in fact, I used to be um, classified as disabled from 18 to 30 because I used to be... I used to be quite severely bipolar. Like, I, used to have, I had three manic episodes, much... George has witnessed at least two of them. Um, and... Uh, you know, I was sectioned and hospitalised and stuff. Um, and I don't, I'm not, I don't have manic psychotic. I, I thought I'd have one last year. Um, and then after 30, um, the Conservative government, I did one of these tests where it's like, can you sit on a chair? I'm like, okay. And then um, I was not deemed disabled enough. So, but I can see how, like, a lot of people end up dying through these tests. Like, there's there's yeah. accusation and there's some horror, horror stories and it's quite what you call ableist um, contempt towards disabled people. It's disgusting. I can see how people slip through the notes. With things like bipolar and um, depression, they, this, to this extent, they're, like, grey areas. Mm-hmm. As in, you, it's still a matter of academic debate what what triggers something and doesn't and what are the causes. And, and a lot of people who do trigger things do not want to be held accountable. And then, like, clinical research is often ghostwritten by drug companies or Big Pharma, and then that's another agenda. And then 
the sort of transparency and accountability isn't really there in the whole system of medicine, um, which people like Ben or Goldacre show. And um, to some extent, you have to accept your diagnosis as it is because you you need to like because you are actually disabled for right. long periods. But then you're also quite high functioning for long periods. And then there were periods of my life, such as when I went to art school in Central St Martins, where the structure of the day is so open that I can be a highly, highly, highly productive person and a highly, highly helpful person. In fact, those three years of university were probably the happiest of my life in an educational setting. Uh, we had a wonderful tutor called Anne Talentire who represented Ireland in uh, Venice Biennale and, and, and was, was very sympathetic to my brother's cause because she experienced the same thing as an Irish uh, Catholic. Um, he used to support Jerry Adams in the 70s. Um, like I could be, but the point is the structure of the art school was a was a way in which I could be productive. To me, like most depressive episodes, even like heal themselves. I'm not someone who takes anything. I mean, I used to take lithium and various antidepressants, and I'm actually quite quite resistant to it. Like to me, like uh, even a quite severe manic episode can heal itself. It's just the structures of employment don't necessarily recognise right. these things. Like these days, we recognise things like maternity leave for example so we recognize an aspect of like embodied experience of being a woman in the employment place and but to me there's so much still to be done to recognize non-neurotypical a more neurodiverse form of uh people in, right. in terms of employment and society and uh, how people get money and earnings and what one day that day will come I hope so. Yeah. I mean, uh, like that's the thing. Like, I, I, I'm waiting for a lot of days to come. But I mean, Sky Radicals <laughs> is part of a sort of mixture of a revenge fantasy and like a utopic ideal of the the the, cause, like, the first chapter is called the draft constitution of the Shy People's Republic of Azerbaijan. Right. And um, it's actually mostly modelled on a uh, North Korea, but <laughs> um, and and teen movies. Um, Heather's actually there's like but Heather's with Winona Ryder like to me like that's the ultimate like my ideal girlfriend is Winona Ryder and Heather's like I actually feel sad that her and Christian Slater actually uh, stopped killing the popular girls um, <laughs> just no I can understand that I had a I have a, a deep affinity to Heather's too I mean Heather's was the only one that I did like watch as teenager right. remains like because that's it's quite unique like like you don't see the sort of darkness of Heathers again and also the right. sort of who's the hero when it gives and, you the uh, catharsis that you need yeah. or you want or yeah. I did I felt like that in school like watching Heathers was like uh, I mean obviously I wouldn't advocate personally <laughs> killing people but yeah. at the same time uh, I felt those feelings those emotions the, the, just the horrible experience of like high school is just I, like you just cannot underestimate it. even in a first world high school it's just like it just be made to feel like no one and like any little just the, the form of socialization is so the, the architecture of yeah. schools i mean i went back to my old school and i was really struck by this the architecture of schools is often not unlike the architecture of a prison yeah. or the architecture of any kind of institution yeah. like uh, like school is the place where we're all institutionalized like yeah. some people are unlucky and they get even more institutionalized in other institutions but the first one that we all go through is school like yeah and that's kind of I don't know. That's a, that says something about society. I think yeah. it says something about how we how we how we're supposed to be in society. How we're supposed to be compliant. How we're yeah, supposed yeah. to all of that stuff. As someone who was kind of had that school experience and then was institutionalized yourself, yeah. uh, and then your brother was kind of like yeah. institutionalized in a different way. I mean, have yeah. you linked all of those? Is are those all linked together for you, or are they all um, very I, separate? It's something I think things? about. I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm very uninstitutionalized now, to be honest. Right. So that, that's more like. 
from my like like late teens to my early twenties. Right. Um, I, I haven't. I, if I have, a, I've had been in states which you'd identify as like a clinically depressive episode or whatever. I just have my own ways of like dealing with it, um, which don't necessarily involve medicine or doctors. Because right. um, I just even I just it's hard to like. I mean, it's actually friends like George that helped me the most through yeah. these episodes rather yeah, than yeah. any professional, quote-unquote. I mean, I can see the point of professionals. I can see how they're trained to speak in certain ways. But if you ask me any tangible benefit, any sort of therapist or, like, um, psychiatrist, I'd say very little. Um, I think the people who helped me the most were, like, my unemployed friends. Right. And just, like, you can have a manic episode and then eventually you go back to your normal state or like go back to normal sleeping it's just a matter of someone staying up with you during those times and right. watching <laughs> film and and um i don't know I, I had that relationship with george actually just to hang out i learned a lot about just films and music there's, there's just some classic moments from those days and some classic albums and um played me this thing by principle and this album called psychoanalysis and his whole hip-hop concept album based on like psychoanalysis and it sort of has this sort of um obviously black men suffer really badly under like psychiatric services like it's horrendous you know like 10 times what don't it has this sort of very witty and um self-reflective way of looking at psychiatry um and then, then a lot of films we watched as well uh, and I, I don't know. I, I, I found them immensely therapeutically beneficial. Like I remember just watching a film about boxing and boxers uh, with my friend Colin, who's another unemployed activist, and just watching a film about Mike Tyson. And it was just like got something from that about what moments when men lose it and like, but can speak about it afterwards. I don't know. Just just like I can't put my finger on just how valuable and healing those moments were. And, and there's no way of professionally certifying that type of um i mean i got through my last depressive episode if you could call it that like, i got a lot of healing and from like muslim muslim women who were divorced and having conversations i i mean i had a horrible depressive episode because i had a terminated engagement and i just spoke to loads of divorcees muslim divorcees and there was this whole underground of like the sort of uh muslim diaspora that i didn't really uh, know about but through talking about my bad experience it all sort of came out and I realised some of my friends had free broken engagements some of them had proposed marriage to people and disappeared and done things and then uh, the, the, you can't certify the wisdom that a divorcee gets in any professional capacity but there's something there right? Um, that's got through I don't know what's the point of pain in our lives or when, when we move from the point of being like a like hurt person and turn into a healer and that transformation, and, and um, I think that's a point of deep pain in our lives. Well, that's, I mean, that corresponds, I the, the most therapy I've ever had is, is through friends, like, like you say, or through conversations with people who've been through experiences yeah. that may not even be the same as mine, may be very different, but they, there's these kind of ways that hearing about somebody else's yeah. trauma, if you like, can touch your trauma. Point, yeah. Points of, like, like how literature and film and right. relatability can help, yeah. And, and the whole charade of therapy is someone who pretends to be this clinical objective person, right? And removes any category of like relatability. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I had a difficult relationship um, with my brother sometimes, and then my uh, I talked to my friend, and she just related to her grandmother and how her grandmother treats her mum, and I found that simple analogy so like lifted so much. Uh, damage and pain off me just but a therapist is not allowed to say something like that they right. have to like be the and this whole nature of like the enlightenment and like right. like clinical right, knowledge right, right. and being known rather than knowing and just just yeah 
Yeah, no, I, I relate to all of that stuff. So the last uh, question, before I, before I ask it, I mean, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you today. Uh, it's been like, it's been interesting having this conversation in this space, like in this public space about, about shyness, about all of this stuff with all of these people around us. Mm. Um, the last question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? And I guess you've mentioned the things that you're plugging a few times, but where can people find them? And um, so go on, uh, right, DIY Cultures, uh, Tumblr.com. So that's one of one of our website, uh, our festival on the 14th of May. We're still open for some commissions uh, for the Outdoor Commission and for the, some of the Art Commissions. That's like an all-day festival. And there's an exhibition that goes with it called DIY Knowledge, which where I'll show the Hillsborough uh, zines and films, which will be from uh, like the 3rd of May till June at Rich Mix again, which is at the top of Brick Lane. Uh, just type Rich Mix and you'll find it. And also the Bookshire Radicals, which should be out any day uh, soon, which published by Bookworks. At the moment, it's with the graphic designer and, and the illustrator. Um, that will be out soon, yeah. So that's my first book. Brilliant. Well, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Um, the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Right. Goodbye, audience. Bye. Bye. I hope it was clear at the start when I was briefly referring to George that he's one of my dearest friends even if sometimes i disagree with his politics and even if sometimes he likes to semi troll me on my facebook wall i also do know that he's doing it with a smile on his face to wind me up which is after all a form of affection if you want to you can vote for getting better acquainted or my other podcast the family tree for the british podcast awards there's a listener's choice option as part of those awards and your listeners and maybe just maybe you will choose me you can do that over at the british podcast awards.com I'm also working on series two of The Family Tree. Me and my partner, Jen, we're in the process of casting that. Look out for more Family Tree. And if you haven't heard the first series, it's all there uh, over on the website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, all the places that podcasts go to hang out. So you can listen to that show from the beginning. You can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like Getting Better Acquainted on Facebook. And you can find Getting Better Acquainted on iTunes, SoundCloud, those kind of places. One thing that really helps the show, if you have some time, it would be for you to leave a rating and a review on iTunes, uh, telling people about the show and why you like it. If you have money to spare and you want to support what I do, then you can donate the show via the paypal link that you can find on the soundcloud page if you want to support the family tree you can sign up to the patreon that would be so helpful because we're making the second season and so we need a budget we need to pay people and so you could help us to do that but remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted